Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, aka Dr. B, is a board-certified gastroenterologist who has a bachelor's from Vanderbilt, a medical degree from Georgetown, and a master's in clinical investigation from Northwestern, and also completed an epidemiology fellowship at UNC's prestigious Gilling School of Global Public Health. I think that's like 16 years in school. He just got out. Uh, <laughs> it's such an honor to have him back on the podcast to chat about his incredible first book, which of course is a bestseller and a must read titled Fiber Fueled. Dr. B, welcome back. Jason, it's great to be back uh, talking to you, my friend. I wish that we were under the bridge, Yeah, um, you know? <laughs> we all do, under it the bridge in Dumbo, but uh, you know, Skype will have to suffice for hopefully not that much longer. But congratulations on the book. Long time coming. Yeah, about two years of work. I'm excited about it. I've, I, you know, you and I were talking offline just briefly that what I'm most excited about is the response from the people, um, that people are feeling connected with it. And I feel, you know, for me, the value in the book is when you change a person's life for the better. And I feel like the book is written to do that. And and I see it starting to happen. And that to me is like, it gets me really excited. Well, I, I love the book and I love it for a lot of reasons. One, you don't really demonize any foods. And then two, you're pro sourdough. And if you're pro sourdough in COVID-19, you are a, I, I am a huge fan and you're going to win a lot of people over right now. <laughs> How could you not be pro sourdough? It's like, I'll, I'll admit my bias. I'm, I'm biased on sourdough and I'm biased on coffee. If you show me a study that says they're good, I'm going to believe that study no matter what. Sign me up. Sign me up. So let's start. You know, so much of your work centers around the microbiome. And how could we not talk about the microbiome and our immune system and COVID-19? So Let's, let's start there. Talk a little bit about the connection between the microbiome and our immune system. Well, I, I know the Mind Body Green listeners are a savvy bunch, and they've obviously heard of the microbiome before, which are these invisible microorganisms that are a part of our body and, and cover us from the top of our head to the tip of our toes, but are most concentrated in our gut, specifically our colon or, or our large intestine. And what you'll find if you were to zoom in on this space using a microscope, you would, you would see a single layer of cells, which we call the epithelial layer. And this is the lining of the colon that we talk about when we talk about things like leaky gut, for example. And on one side of that layer of cells is your microbiome, 39 trillion strong, 39 trillion microbes hanging out down there. And on the other side of that single layer of cells that is so thin that it's invisible to the naked eye, you would find 70% of the immune system. They are in complete close proximity right next to each other. And there is crosstalk across this line, this epithelial layer. They are in constant communication with one, with one another to the point that I would say you can't separate the gut from the immune system that gut health is immune health. If you were to say, Dr. B, what are the clues? Like, what are, what are, what's the, what are the tricks to optimizing my immune system, you know, given the circumstances of COVID-19? What I would say is that we need to focus on gut health. 
when you focus on gut health and you optimize that, you are optimizing your immune system. There's a direct connection there. So you mentioned the microbiome. You know, yes, a lot going on in the gut, but head to toe. And when I think of head to toe, I think of hands and I think of hand sanitizer. And yes, it, it's sort of the cost of doing uh, business, if you will, in this age when you travel and like something, you just have to use it. But part of what hand sanitizer does is it just destroys everything. And I, I think about, you know, the gut, you know, sometimes you need to take an antibiotic. You, you have to take it, but it destroys everything. But then when you do that, you know, you get in a gut healing protocol, you take your probiotic, you heal your gut, there's a process. But what I'm concerned about, and I think it's come up recently, a lot of discussions I had is like, what are we doing to our microbiome? We talk about our hands and our skin and over sanitized world. And it's kind of a necessary evil at the moment. But I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on, on general concern about the microbiome when it comes to our hands and our skin and living in COVID-19? You know, I think it's uh, it's a nuanced conversation when we're living in the era of COVID-19 because one of the ways that we have to potentially protect ourselves from transmission of the virus is through hand washing. So, and I, I, I wouldn't want to spread a message that, you know, suggests that we shouldn't be washing our hands. I, you know, I, I think that's hundred percent. You have to, it's just right. like, you have to, but it's like, oh, I know, right. I know I'm hurting the biome. So like, what do I do next? Right. Yeah. And, and so I think that, you know, it, it leads to a more general conversation, um, Jason, that when we look at the way that we live in the 20th, in the 21st century in 2020, when we look at the way that we live, it really is an, an over sterilized life that we lead. You know, they, they have these studies that I reference towards the back end of my book where they look at what our man-made structures, our man-made edifices, what are they like from a microbiome perspective? And they're effectively dead and lifeless. You know, we build these things, we pave these roads, and we have this concrete. And that those things don't have a microbiome. Whereas if you take a step back and you think about life within the world, you know, it sounds a little crazy to say this, but I, I sincerely believe this to be true. All life on this planet either has a microbiome or is a part of the microbiome. All life. And so that means that the plant, you know, you pick up an apple and you hold it in your hand, that apple studies have shown that apple has a microbiome. In fact, that apple I reference in the book has about a hundred million microbes and that over a thousand species. And that's one of the benefits of consuming that food. And so, you know, when we, when we are excessively clean, we are basically taking away any sort of life that exists around us. It's invisible. We can't see it. And there's potentially a cost to pay for that. And to me, I think that where I would move the conversation into is, okay, if we have to live this way, if we have to live with hand washing the way that we currently are, how do we compensate for that? And the way that we compensate for that is actually by supporting the microbiome, right? So if you're not, if you're not caring for your microbiome and then you're also being hyper sterile, you're putting yourself in greater risk than the person who is actively nurturing a healthy gut microbiome. And yes, by the way, they have to wash their hands repeatedly, or by the way, you know, they have the need for antibiotics on occasion. So one of the ways we know that our microbiome is, is off and there's something going on in the gut, people often talk about dysbiosis and leaky gut as like, so can you explain 
those terms are tossed around quite a bit, but I, I always love, I, I have to ask the question because from what is going on? Cause it's confusing. And how do we know if we have either and how can we fix it? Well, I'll, uh, so I'll tell you the way that I think about these things and, and also the way that I approach this as a gastroenterologist for the patients who come into my clinic, which, by the way, I'm convinced that every single one of the patients who, who walk through the doors of my clinic has dysbiosis. Um, the Let me first explain what these things are. So dysbiosis is is referring to a loss of balance within the gut. The gut microbiome is designed to have a place, to be in a place where there is a broad, wide diversity of microbes, both good guys and bad guys, but that the good guys outnumber the bad guys, and that because there's this broad diversity, it's resilient, it is prepared for anything that you throw at it, because each one of these microbes is a part of the team, and they play a role. And they're ready to step up and do their job when you need them to. So a broad, diverse, balanced microbiome, we call that eubiosis. And when you deviate from that, you develop dysbiosis. And basically what we see in dysbiosis is that there's three parts. The first thing is changes to the actual bacteria and the microbes themselves. Less good guys, more bad guys, more of these sort of inflammatory microbes, and a loss of diversity. When we lose diversity in the microbiome, that's a bad sign. That has been correlated repeatedly with the development of disease. So that's what happens to the microbes. They have loss of diversity, less good guys, more bad guys. And when this happens, it causes injury to the lining of the colon. Five minutes ago, we were talking about this epithelial layer that separates the microbiome from the immune system. That epithelial layer are cells that are held together by things called, called tight junctions which are effectively spot welds. They're basically like keeping those two cells together. And when we have damage to the microbiome, those tight junctions start to break down. When they break down, you have an increase in intestinal permeability of the gut. This is the idea of leaky gut. An increase in intestinal permeability is leaky gut. So when people are referring to leaky gut, you know, I may not always agree with everything that you read on the internet about leaky gut, but we're effectively talking about the same thing. Leaky gut and dysbiosis, we're, we're effectively talking about the same state. So how does one feel when they have leaky gut dysbiosis? So the most obvious thing is the manifestation of digestive issues. Abdominal pain, gas bloating, um, food intolerances, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, acid reflux. You know, all these things are, are manifestations of a damaged gut microbiome. But then beyond that, there's all these other symptoms that many doctors would refer to as nonspecific, but they exist, they're real, and they're often indicative of a damaged gut. And those include things like brain fog and fatigue and rashes or skin issues. Um, and, you know, these are extraintestinal manifestations of a damaged microbiome. So, you know, it's interesting, Jason, you asked me, how, how do we know if a person has dysbiosis? So there is no test that I would characterize as validated and reliable to tell us that a person has dysbiosis. That doesn't exist. The microbiome tests that are available commercially right now 
I think they're very interesting, but we need some additional study in order to be able to say that they're ready for prime time. But when a patient walks through the doors of my clinic and, they ha- and they're there to see me for their digestive issues, and then in addition to that, I see that they have anxiety, depression, migraine headaches, chronic sinusitis, thyroid issues, and eczema. Okay, literally every single condition that I just named has been associated with dysbiosis. Because dysbiosis is so far-reaching, it affects our digestion, but it also affects our immune system, our metabolism, our mood, our brain health, even our hormonal balance. And so when you see a person who has digestive issues and they're manifesting other conditions that have been associated with dysbiosis, I don't need a test to tell me that they have dysbiosis. It's quite obvious. Right. And so when we think about solutions, you have this chapter. I love the title of the chapter. It's, it speaks to the ex-athlete in me. Fiber, short-chain fatty acids, and postbiotics for the win. So, <laughs> so we'll move on. So can we start with fiber? It's obviously the, the title of the book is fiber fueled and, and then we'll move on to short chain fatty acids and postbiotics, but let's start with fiber. Why is it so critical? And, you know, it, it, it's so critical and the, it's so simple yet we're kind of missing a lot when it comes to fiber. I think we're missing a lot because we we have our prejudice when it comes to fiber. I mean, basically we've decided what fiber is and it's hard to reset someone when it comes to that. You know, we basically have decided fiber is boring. Fiber, fiber is this obligation. It's the orange drink that my grandma used to have so that she could have a bowel movement. You know, that's kind of where our head is at when it comes to fiber. When in fact, what I see is I see this vibrant, exciting thing that is changing our understanding of human biology that really it speaks to the connection that we have with our gut microbiome. And so, you know, let me just sort of trace for the mind, body, green listeners, the path of fiber so that they understand, you know, we have been told the fiber goes in the mouth, passes through 20 feet of intestine, scrapes some stuff out and launches out the other end as a torpedo. And that is true for insoluble fiber, but there's this entire other class of fiber called soluble fiber. All plants contain these types of fiber. These are prebiotic fibers, and there are many different types. In fact, there are so many types that we don't even have an estimate of how many varieties of fiber exist in nature. Suffice it to say, and I think this is one of the really important points of the book, every single plant has fiber. Every single plant has its own unique types of fiber we shouldn't consider fiber to be this interchangeable thing where grams of fiber is grams of fiber and it doesn't matter if it's a fiber one bar or it's coming from a salad. That's that's not helping us when the more that you learn about the way that the microbiome functions. So when we consume foods that contain fiber, meaning fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes, it passes through the intestine and it gets to the colon. And when it gets there, the microbes get into an absolute feeding frenzy. This is their food. You are feeding them. And just like us, they are as alive as you and I are. And when you feed them, you are empowering them. They grow stronger. They are more capable of doing their job. And then they want to pay you back. And they do in spades. And the way that they do that, the way that they pay you you back in spades is they transform the fiber into short chain fatty acids, butyrate, 
acetate, and propionate. And these things are incredible. I discuss them in great detail in chapter three of the book. The one that you like, the the, the, the chapter it. that you one enjoyed. of my all time yeah. favorite favorite uh, chapter titles for the win. Thank you for the win for the win. Hey, it's <laughs> it's upbeat and it's encouraging. So and and these things, these short chain fatty acids are like to me the definition of anti inflammatory. You know, they basically heal leaky gut. I go through in the book how step by step they reverse dysbiosis. So if you're asking me, Dr. B, how do I reverse dysbiosis? We need this. We need to, we need short chain fatty acids. They also prevent colon cancer. They lower our cholesterol. They, they reverse type 2 diabetes. We believe that they actually prevent and reverse heart disease. They actually work on the blood brain barrier. People, people who have um, brain fog, I think what's happening is they have leaky brain. Forget leaky gut. I think people that have brain fog have leaky brain and they actually, the short chain fatty acids will repair that. They even prevent Alzheimer's disease. And so the power is incredible. It's, it's uniformly healing. It's throughout the entire body. The way that you get these things is through the consumption of fiber from plants, from whole plant foods. And the problem is that 97% of Americans are not even getting the minimal amount of fiber in their diet. And so they're missing out on this am amazing healing opportunity. So what's enough fiber in your mind? How much fiber should we be eating on a daily basis? And like, what does that look like? If, if you're gonna paint a picture of how much, you know, what does that look like in terms of servings of fruits and vegetables we should be having daily in your mind? Like minimum and so, then like where you wanna be. I, the way that I feel about it is this. First of all, the USDA has a recommended amount of fiber, which is that women should get about 25 grams and men should get about 38 grams. That's the number that we're not hitting. Uh, most Americans are like 15, 16, 17 grams of fiber per day. To me, it's less about grams of fiber. I actually believe in moving past the number of grams and focusing on something different. What we have discovered is that each plant has its own unique blend of fiber. Those unique blends of fiber will feed specific microbes in your colon. These microbes are picky eaters. They only like the fiber from specific foods. And so that is a really critical and important point is that you can't just count grams of fiber. You, you, know, you could eat two pounds of kale and that's not actually going to be a healthy diet for your microbiome. When they studied this, and this is one of the key points of the book, is that when they studied what is the most important predictor of a healthy gut microbiome, it's the diversity of plants in your diet. Because each plant has that unique blend of fiber to feed unique microbes. And when you have a broad, diverse diet when it comes to the plants, you are going to support that diverse microbiome that you and I were talking about, which is a healthy microbiome. So what does that look like? You know, my thing is this, the mind, body, green listening crew is diverse in their dietary preferences and that's okay. I, I embrace and I welcome that, but I want to meet you where you are and whether, no matter what diet you follow, whether it's a vegan diet, whether it's paleo or keto or agnostic, or you're just kind of dabbling and you're trying to figure out what you want to do to me. What this is telling us is in order to in order to support a healthy gut microbiome, we need to introduce more diversity of plants into our diet. So to give you an example of how I do this, you know, 
despite what you may see on Instagram, my wife and I have normal meals many times. (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, I'll go home and we will have, we have, we have two kids. My daughter is six. My son is three. And sometimes we don't feel like cooking that much. And so we'll make some pasta. So we'll do an organic whole wheat pasta with tomato sauce. Okay. Two plants. Dr. B, you're, you're letting us down here. You're not doing too great with the plant-based diversity. But hold up, get your kids in the kitchen, get them involved, have them throw some garlics, some garlic, some onions, zucchini, maybe some mushrooms. How about some greens, spinach, kale, whichever you like. Get that simmering. The house smells amazing. The kids are hungry. They helped you cook it. And then you serve it up and then you get the fresh herbs going. You get the basil, you get the parsley going or whatever it is that you like. All of a sudden, boom, you're up to nine plants. It didn't require much effort. Everyone's excited to eat it. It tastes delicious. And guess what? Your microbes are absolutely thriving and they're dancing a little jig down there because you hooked them up. I love that you're talking about diversity because I think we we often, so often have the discussion in our world about like that silver bullet ingredient. And that silver bullet, like we're gonna we're gonna all exclude this one thing over here, or we're all gonna just drink celery juice, and that's <laughs> and that's it. And you know, in my opinion, what I think what really works is is lifestyle. And lifestyle, you mentioned kids. We have kids. Uh, lifestyle is about diversity. It's about inclusion. It's about you know, when we all get to go out to dinner again someday, being able to go out to dinner and not feel like, oh, wait, there's nothing I can eat on this menu. It doesn't matter what restaurant you're at. Like, and diversity is key to a lifestyle that ultimately delivers the type of results you want to see that last the test of time, not, yeah. not short term. Yeah, I, I I believe that a diverse diet of average foods to me is superior to a diet that overemphasizes one or two superfoods. Wow. Yeah. You know, because you're getting all of the – basically, it's all there in balance and you're getting the strengths of all of those different plants. And you don't have to worry about – you know, I mean, look, we could eat kale all day and our vitamin K is going to be coming out of our eyeballs. <laughs> You know, like, and it's going to be so much more than you, than your body actually needs. And you're going to be missing out on certain nutrients because you didn't have the diversity that you needed. And so, so to me, Jason, the way I like to think about it is this, it's like, think of these plants, like they're your friends. You want to have as many friends as possible, but it's unrealistic to pretend that every single friend you're going to spend the same amount of time with. You're not. So have as many friends as possible, but make the superfoods your best friends. And, have, and decide what your foundational foods are and have them in your diet a couple times a week. So you mentioned kale coming out of your eyeballs and, you know, fiber going to, down the digestive tract and the colon. And wh- where I went, of course, was poop. And the subject of, you know, it's always, always a popular subject of, well, am I pooping enough? And does my poop look healthy? So let's set the record straight. How often should we be pooping and what should that poop look like paint a picture paint a picture for us (laughs) be careful what you ask for because this is what i do for a living i talk about poop literally all day 
And uh, all right, well, I, I think I think it is a, a topic that people are interested in. I mean, actually, the book "What Does Your Poo Say About You?" has sold like six hundred thousand copies, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so, shows you how interested people are in this in this idea. Um, I think that there are many examples of our modern life where things have changed rapidly in a hundred years and we have normalized things that are abnormal. And, you know, first of all, I want to say it's not a number. So sometimes like I literally the other day had a patient of mine who called me up, they heard me on a podcast say a number and they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm not pooping that much. And I was like, okay, don't worry. You're okay. Let's talk through this. You know, let's talk through this. It's okay. Um, so I do think that if we were eating a diet enriched, you know, with fiber the way that it should be, and again, to me, I, I believe in a plant-predominant diet, no matter what sort of approach you choose to take, whether you choose to include the animal products in your diet or not, I believe that 70, 80, 90% of it should be plants. And so when we're doing that, we are, we're clearly going to exceed the USDA recommended amount of fiber. And most of us would probably be pooping twice or three times a day and they would be good. Like, I mean, let me just, I hope you guys don't mind me describing this. And if I go too far, you can hold it against me if you need to and say I'm weird, but I mean, it, it needs to be soft formed sausage shaped. And when you do the evacuation, when you go, you have that sense of complete emptying, which I think is a really important part of the story. And, and also there's, there is an element of satisfaction. Like let's not lie. A good bowel movement is pleasurable. It's great. And, um, we'll just stop the interview so, right there. It, it's <laughs> Mike drop. <laughs> so, Sorry. but I think, I think it's important though, Jason, to hear for people to hear this, you can poop every day. Okay. We, so we, we say to have a bowel movement once a day is normal. You could poop every day and be constipated. And I see these people in my clinic literally every day. And typically the story is this gas, bloating, sometimes some nausea. Oftentimes they lost their appetite, some discomfort, oftentimes in the left lower quadrant or right upper quadrant. And, um, they say, but doc, I'm pooping every day. How could I possibly be constipated? And then I ask the, the key question, do you feel like you really empty when you go? They're like, no, you know, I kind of, I sometimes go and it's like a partial thing. And then I have to go again 30 minutes later where I never really feel like I get it all the way out. And the, the issue is this, if you, if you get 70% of it out, but you keep 30% of it inside, it starts to add up like compound interest, you know, and it's basically backing up over the course of days. And then next thing you know, you're, you're super constipated and believe it or not, I think this is going to surprise many of your, many of your listeners the most severe forms of constipation that I come across are the patients who actually have diarrhea because what they have is they have what's called overflow, overflow diarrhea. And what's happened is that they basically have a calm of impacted stool that is backing up for back, for lack of a better expression, they have a log jam and the solid stuff backs up behind the log jam. And the liquid sneaks through the cracks and the crevices and the liquid comes down and then explodes out the bottom like diarrhea. And these are the people who come to me and they say, doc, I'm having a ton of gas and bloating, some nausea. I'm, I've been constipated my entire life, but all of a sudden one day I woke up and I was having this bad diarrhea. 
And you suspect that this is the case. And the hard part for me is convincing my patient that the solution to their diarrhea is to actually move their bowels more. Because if you can get rid of that log jam, then basically these people get back to normal. So on the subject of pooping, how much of a role does water play in water consumption? Water plays a role. Exercise plays a role. Taking a walk after dinner can go a long way. Fiber plays a role. But also, you know, you have to understand, I take care of the people with at least moderate, if not severe constipation. Like the people who I see have already tried those things and they don't work. And so, so those things can help. We should be drinking more water. We're not drinking enough of it. We should be exercising more. And those things can contribute to improvement. But I, for some people, it's just not going to be enough. I am curious, though, on water, like what, what in your mind is a good amount for us to be drinking on a daily basis? Okay, so in my mind, this is the, this is the approach that I believe in. I, I think that we should hydrate first thing in the morning. In fact, that's one of my major health hacks that I believe in. Because you have not had anything to drink for, you know, eight hours, potentially, maybe even more. And you're dehydrated. And the first thing that you grab is coffee, which dehydrates you even further. So I'm a big believer that two large glasses of water right off the bat when you wake up while you got the coffee pot brewing. And then each meal, three meals a day, you should be having water. And if you're someone who does time-restricted eating, and you are skipping your breakfast, that's okay. I often do that myself. Here's what I do in the morning. I'm a big coffee drinker. I love it. I pay attention, though, to my lips. And so when I'm drinking my coffee, if I notice that my lips are starting to get dry, then it's telling me that I'm kind of pushing the coffee a little bit harder than I should, and I reach back for more water. Interesting. I like that. I like that. So, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll move off of poop. I think we've got some closure on we have- poop. Okay. Uh, and we'll and we'll move on to the other the other big P, if you will. So, you know, I think we're familiar with probiotics, but something you talk a lot about are postbiotics. So, can you explain postbiotics and, and why they're so okay. critical? Have you ever had the experience where you came across a band and you discovered them, and you told your friends, "You guys won't believe this band that I saw the other night," and then six months later, the band is on the radio. And it's like the new hot thing. And your friends are like, oh my gosh, how did you find that band six months before anyone else? That's postbiotics right now. You guys need to get, seriously. So that was you like, for me, that a, was like seeing fish in 1992. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. <laughs> That's, and you were nine years old. <laughs> no, I'm 45. So I was in, uh, I was in high school, high school. But, but yeah, we can get off <laughs> another, another That's podcast, impressive. another conversation. Yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, that, that's kind of what the deal is with postbiotics because here's the story. Everyone's heard of probiotics. We've been hyping them up. You know, many people believe that probiotics are the backbone of gut health. Probiotics are the living bacteria. You can take them as a capsule. Many of them, or in fact, potentially all of them, may already be living inside you. And so prebiotics are the food. Now, prebiotics are, you can tell when prebiotics are starting to come on because you start to see it being advertised in our food system. Some new foods are coming out and they're advertising, hey, we got prebiotics for you in here. So obviously, this is becoming more of a mainstream term. The prebiotics are the food, fiber is the classic example of prebiotics. It feeds the microbes, it makes them stronger, 
they multiply and they grow. When you give prebiotics to the bacteria in your gut, you are helping them to grow and to get stronger. And then they reward you with the short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids are an example of a postbiotic. Now, here's the key I want people to understand. The entire point, the entire point are the postbiotics. If you were completely sterile without a microbiome, Jason, and I gave you fiber, it would be pointless. It would do nothing. If you had a microbiome, but I withdrew all fiber from your diet, you would never experience the postbiotics and those, those bacteria in your gut would not be able to help you nearly as much. The entire point is that prebiotics like fiber meet the probiotic bacteria in your gut. Magic happens. They do some Harry Potter stuff. And next thing you know, you have these healing, powerful anti-inflammatory things like butyrate, acetate, and propionate that spread throughout the entire body all the way up to your brain, your heart, your immune system, your metabolism, helps you with your weight balance, helps you prevent diabetes, helps you with, uh, with insulin sensitivity. You know, all of these things that we've been hearing about in the health space, all these things we've been hearing about in the health space, there are studies connecting them back to the, to the short-chain fatty acids, which are the postbiotics. It's the entire point. And so there's a, so much of the book is around a plant-based diet and the power of a plant-based diet. And, you know, when you think of eating plant-based, you go to the why and phytochemicals are a lot of the why they're exclusively found in plant foods. And can you talk about the power of phytochemicals? Like why are they? excuse me, what are they? And, you know, what are some of your, your favorite sources? You know, people have heard of resveratrol and red wine, right? And it's, yeah. it's another red wine is another one of those ones where anytime there's a study that says red wine is good. I'm like, yes. Awesome. We're in the same boat, red wine, sourdough, and black coffee. Sign me up. <laughs> oh man. We're brothers, We're brothers <laughs> from another mother. So, you know, people hear about resveratrol, and it's interesting. They've done studies looking at, so resveratrol is a phytochemical. It's a polyphenol. It has antioxidant properties, which means that it reduces oxidative stress within the body. You'll find it in red grapes. You'll find it obviously in red wine. You'll even find it in other foods like, believe it or not, peanuts. Peanuts contain resveratrol. So it's not exclusive to red wine. But it's interesting because when they study the effects of red wine, red wine does affect the microbiome in a positive way. And the reason why is because of this phytochemical resveratrol. Resveratrol actually has prebiotic properties, not in the same way that fiber does. It won't produce short-chain fatty acids, but it turns out that it actually will alter the gut microbiome and make it even healthier. So that's just one example. You know, there's plenty of other examples of these things. People have heard of some of these things like beta carotene. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you my personal favorite. Um, if you were to look at the cruciferous vegetables, and I talk about this in my book, and I really, I mean, I can't help myself. I like nerded out on this part. I, I could have written, by the way, Jason, you, you may know which part I'm about to talk about. I could have written like 20 pages on this. So the cruciferous vegetables are known to protect us from cancer. We're talking about broccoli, cauliflower, um, kale, arugula, broccoli sprouts, Brussels sprouts. And what's interesting is that they contain these 
enzymes, or I should say actually a phytochemical called glucosinolates. And the glucosinolates are kept separate from an enzyme called myrosinase. And it's almost like the setup of a bomb where you have the two chambers that are separated. And when you mix the two chambers, it leads to a chemical reaction. So the glucosinolates and the enzyme are separate. But if you chew your cruciferous vegetables, you will mix these two things together and they will create what are called isothiocyanates. And that is an entire class of phytochemicals that are absolute cancer destroyers. And my favorite out of all of them is sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is, um, many of your listeners probably have already heard of it. It prevents cancer by seven different mechanisms. It has healing effects throughout the entire body. In my book, I describe how sulforaphane starts activating short chain fatty acids even more, which is like mind uh, that blew my mind when I discovered that I was like, wait a minute, hold up. So short chain fatty acids are Batman and the sulforaphane is Robin and they're basically teaming up. Like that's incredible. So, and the, the best place to get sulforaphane, by the way, is not broccoli or mature broccoli. It's actually the sprout broccoli sprouts have up to a hundred times more sulforaphane than you will find in adult mature broccoli. And, you know, a little health hack, um, since we're talking to a savvy crowd here with the Mind Body Green crew, a little health hack that you guys may enjoy. These cruciferous vegetables, like broccoli, for example, they have the glucosinolates, but when you heat them up, you lose the enzyme, the myrosinase, that you need to activate. So if you buy frozen broccoli, it's been blanched. That's the way that the frozen broccoli is prepared. It's obviously not just raw. It's already been cooked. So the, the, the health hack is this. When you consume cruciferous vegetables, grab some mustard seed powder and sprinkle the mustard seed powder on it. And the mustard, the mustard seed powder actually has the enzyme that these vegetables need to activate so that you can get even more of these isothiocyanates like sulforaphane to give you the cancer and anti-inflammatory benefits. I love, so, but Jason, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love the hack. I love sulforaphane. You're, you are preaching to the sulforaphane choir over here. <laughs> and the bottom line is that, you know, this, these are just a few examples. Sulforaphane, beta carotene, um, you know, resveratrol. These are just a few examples. We think that there's at least 8,000 phytochemicals most of which we haven't really adequately studied to know exactly what they do in the human body. But what we keep finding when we study them is that they're anti-inflammatory and they're beneficial. And this is where when you eat a wide diversity of plants, one of the hidden benefits is that these, these, these different plants will have different phytochemicals, many of which by the way, are, are indicative of their color. So when people say eat the rainbow, kind of what you're saying is eat a wide diversity of plants with different phytochemicals. And, and that's, that's one of the benefits that you get by eating this way. So one of the other things, I think we're all on board with eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And we covered a lot on the plant front and I, I want to segue over to some of the, the, one of the fun categories, if you will, fermented foods. And can you talk about the power of fermented foods and, and then sour, sourdough is a fermented food. 
So we, we have to, I think we have to start with sourdough. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> I'm going to have sourdough pizza tonight with a glass of oh red wine. So I'm going to have my fermented food with resveratrol. That's how I'm looking at my meal this evening. Okay. So I, stop me if I start losing, like start losing it here and just get too nerdy because I love this, this topic. Fermented foods, I think, should a- absolutely be a part of the American diet. We have lost sight of the food traditions. Every culture in human history had fermented foods as a part of their food tradition. But we, the melting pot in the United States, moved on from that because we developed canning and preservatives and all these different things to replace it. But the, what, we're, what we didn't realize or understand is the benefit of, ferment, of fermentation. It transforms our food. You know, really, fermentation is transformation, and it's being, it's being facilitated by healthy microbes, bacteria, and yeast. So let's talk about sourdough for a moment. You know, most people are aware that you need baker's yeast to, to create bread. And so baker's yeast is added in to leaven the bread so that you can basically have a nice fluffy, you know, loaf of bread. Well, that baker's yeast is not a necessity. There are wild yeasts completely capable of doing the exact same thing. And believe it or not, they exist in the air. You don't even need to introduce them necessarily. And that is the concept behind sourdough. If you were living in the mountains during the like uh, the gold rush, if you live in the mountains outside of San Francisco, you didn't have baker's yeast. You had flour and you had water. And when you combined those things and you allowed them to mix and you allowed those yeast to, to take hold and cultivate that, that flour over the course of days, you would transform that flour into something that is a fermented tangy dough. And that is the origin of sourdough. And now the typically easier approach is to have a starter, but a starter just means that someone else is providing you with their, their, you know, sourdough. The, um, the famous, um, sourdough bakers that exist in San Francisco, there's a history that's there. They showed up around the same time as the, the gold rush. And many of these guys from the gold rush would come into San Francisco. That's how San Francisco kind of got started. They came in and they spent their money there. And the Boudoin family was one of the families that showed up and they, they, set, they set up a bakery to create sourdough bread. And to this day, they are using the same sourdough that they used from the 1800s. You can carry forward the dough with this mix of bacteria and yeast over literally more than 100 years. And when you ferment the dough and you create sourdough, what you're doing is you're, you're unlocking healthy enzymes, healthy acids. That's where, the, that's where the tangy flavor comes from. And you are simultaneously withdrawing some of the parts of the food that are less desirable. For example, uh, gluten is diminished substantially when you, when you ferment your bread and create sourdough. So some people who find sensitivity to other forms of bread actually do incredibly well with sourdough. And I wouldn't recommend it if you have celiac disease, that's a different situation. But some people who are very sensitive to gluten containing foods, they do perfectly fine with sourdough. And so in the other 
fun category, you mentioned peanuts. And so can we talk about peanuts for a moment? Because you don't hear peanuts a lot. And you mentioned yeah. peanuts earlier, you know, within the nut family, you know, people just like, well, oh, there's pistachios, there's almonds, uh, you know, but I didn't, but, but you, you mentioned peanuts. So can we talk about the health benefits of peanuts for a minute? Cause I think we're going to make a lot of people happy. I mean, I think peanuts are okay. Uh, you know, pe so peanuts are actually a legume, believe it or not. Yes, they're they're yes. not a tree, a tree nut they're in a electin. traditional way. They're electin. Right? They're, they're electin containing. Yes. And, um, uh, I think that, you know, what you get with peanuts are that they're high, they're high in protein. So they're a rich source of protein because they're a legume. Um, and as I mentioned before, they actually contain resveratrol. So, you know, I don't, I don't view the peanut as being completely worthless. You know, <laughs> if you say to me, Dr. B, what, 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 what nuts do you recommend? So to me, once again, it comes back to the idea diversity is great, right? There's a place for Brazil nuts that contain selenium. There's a place for the, the omega super seeds, which to me are my favorite out of all of these. If I'm allowed to offer up the seeds, you know, chia, flax, hemp, those are my favorites. They go in my smoothie every day, all three. And I love walnuts. I think walnuts are delicious and they have omega threes too. So what's in your, what's in your smoothie every day? I know you switch it up, but can you provide a little insight? What's, what, what are your go-tos in your smoothie every day? So there's like a core, there's a core structure and you may switch it up or you may, you may, you know, plop it into the bowl and, um, add toppings and make it into a smoothie bowl instead of drinking it. So, but there's always, there's always banana or bananas, greens of some variety. We tip, we tend to do arugula, um, Broccoli sprouts, we'll sneak it in there. And then a nice, strong, healthy portion of organic blueberries. And flax, ground flax, chia, hemp, all make it into the smoothie. So that's our foundational smoothie recipe right there. Um, one of the big secrets that I've discovered recently, you've probably been talking about this for five or 10 years, and I just recently came across this. If you freeze your banana, then it can radically transform your smoothie and make it much more thick. I like how you you phrase that. It can radically transform your smoothie. <laughs> it's it's a radical change because you can either if you, if you have a room temperature banana, it's going to be a smoothie that's creamy but it's thin and it's meant for drinking. And if you take the banana out of the freezer, you have a thick, you know, it's either you could call it nice cream or you could call it a smoothie bowl. Or both, whatever you want. I love it. So, what what's your alternative milk of choice? Um, we tend to okay. So, if I have to unpack this, just tell me. But we we tend to use organic soy milk. Okay. We will use soy milk in our in our house. Interesting. I, I would have I would have said you were an almond milk guy. You know, I think that they all have their place. Um, the the almond milk for me is a little bit thin. Okay. A little bit, a little bit closer to watery from my perspective. Um, the and the one thing that I will say about all the alternative milks, the one sort of word of caution that I would give, you know, I, like I I love uh, a coconut milk latte. I love it, but I want people to also realize that coconut milk or coconut oil or palm oil are incredibly high in saturated fat, and so you don't want to be going overboard on these particular things. 
so you moderation. So you mentioned fat. What are your favorite healthy fats? Well, I mean, you have to talk about omega threes, right? So omega threes are the best. So you know, first of all, um, omega threes and omega sixes are polyunsaturated fats. They are required for human health. We can't. We are not capable of producing them ourselves. We need to get them in our diet. And the problem that we have in the United States, and I think most people are aware of this, is that omega-6s, we have far too many of, and omega-3s, we don't get enough. And the story of omega-3s, I think, is kind of interesting. I don't know if, if perhaps some of your listeners haven't heard this before. All omega-3s come from plants. 100% of omega-3s originate from plants. There, there's no animal on the planet that ma- makes their own omega-3s. And there's two main types of omega-3s. There's the terrestrial, like land-based omega-3s. So those are chia, flax, hemp, walnuts. Those all contain omega-3s. Though That produces ALA. But for the brain health benefits, we need it to become DHA and EPA. And there's a conversion that can occur. But excessive consumption of omega-6s, which we get from other vegetable oils slows down and botches up that conversion, which is part of the reason why many of us want to get directly our DHA and EPA so that we don't have to rely on the conversion factor. DHA and EPA comes from the sea. And the origin is typically algae. So for example, the salmon, and if you, if, if consuming salmon is the way that you choose to get it, that's, you know, I understand, but the salmon don't produce omega threes. They store it in their fat because they consume algae. And so I, so I'm a big believer, like I'm not uh, a believer in taking 50 supplements all at once, but I do think that we should all be taking an omega three supplement of some variety. I personally choose the algae based one. And you know, if I were to go beyond that, I think all of us should be on B12 and a vitamin D supplement. Yeah, I take, I take everything you said. I, (laughs) I, uh, I consume a lot of wild salmon. I take an omega three. Uh, and I also love, uh, sea vegetables, as you know, it's in our, it's our sea veggie powder. Uh, well, and that, that's right. And that's one of the beautiful things of, of the sea vegetables, which by the way, I, I, I talked about in my book as being one of the top foods or what I think is an opportunity for most Americans is that the average American really hasn't been exposed to consuming these, these sea vegetables, which we call seaweed, but it means really a, a vegetable and they have unique forms of fiber. They have unique forms of fat. You know, effectively, what you are getting is something that can add, that they're a great source of iodine and, and potentially B12. I mean, basically, you're getting a unique source of nutrition that's hard to replace when you are excluding them. So on the subject of healthy fats, I'm assuming avocados and olive oil are a staple for you? avocados, seeds, nuts. And then when I go with oil, when I do use oil, it's an extra virgin olive oil. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think that the, the conversation on oil, the way I feel about it is this, when you reach for oil, you do EVOO and you don't like, I personally don't believe that we should be like guzzling it. And the reason why my, my rationale is this, that if we were to take a pound of oil, a pound of oil has 4,000 calories and zero grams of fiber. 
a pound of greens contains 100 calories and a hell of a lot of fiber. All right. And so from my perspective, oil is extremely calorie dense and it is um, fiber deficient. And so I don't think that we should be seeking more oil in our diet. But I do think that, as you know, Jason, nutrition is all about substitutions. What do you replace with what? So if you take unhealthy oil and you plug EVOO in its place, you've made a level up. And that's a good thing. So in closing, you know, when we think about the future, you know, what are we going to be talking about a year from now, two years from now? Is it, you know, fecal transplants? Like when we think of your world and what's exciting to you, where is science headed? What's the conversation we're going to be having in the future? All right. So in my book, Fiber Fueled, I, I lay out to you the way that the microbiome works. I mean, the subtitle is the plant-based gut health program, but to me, it's just the gut health program. This is just the way our body works. And so I lay out for you the way it works. And I think that we know enough today to, to, to point the compass in directions of human health, to understand enough to say, Hey, that's the way that we need to move. Okay. But the future is precision. The future is harnessing the power and the information, the, I mean, frankly, overwhelming amount of information that you can gather from the microbiome and using that to identify testing diagnostics for disease states and using that information to, to basically help people to be healthier, whether that be through dietary interventions like personalized diets or whether that be through medications. Like for example, in, in the oncologic world, there are certain drugs that they've discovered that if your microbiome is healthy, they're great at fighting cancer. And if your microbiome is not healthy, they're not. And though that's just the beginning of our personalized approach using the powerful information that we can gather from a person's microbiome. And there's sourdough, red wine, and coffee along the way as we're on that journey. There will be plenty of that. <laughs> Dr. B, thank you so much for being on. Congrats on Fiber Fueled. Everyone, check it out. I love the book. I love the theme of diversity, inclusion, in nutrition. All starts with plants. I love it. Thank you, my friends. It's an honor to come on. You guys can find me. Many of you probably already know me, but I'm at the Gut Health MD on Instagram and Facebook. And if you come to my website, theplantfedgut.com, I have a free, you know, I don't know if I ever told you about this. I, I created a research guide for the book because I have 600 references that I had to take out of the back of the book. Wow. And so what I did is I put the 600 references online for free for anyone. If you don't have to buy the book. I'll give them to you right now. But what I did to complement them is that I feel like we live in this world right now where people are confused and frustrated because they hear different doctors saying polar opposite things. And I think that having the tools, we each need to have the individual tools to separate the noise from the truth because the truth is out there. And so I want, I wanted to give people the basic tools of understanding the essentials of clinical research so that you can be, um, at least a intelligent consumer and be able to say, okay, now I don't know if that, let me, let me hear a little more about that, you know, that kind of deal. 
So that's on my website, theplantfedgut.com. And I hope you guys enjoy the book, Fiber Fueled. I love hearing from you. I love uh, getting messages through Instagram. And it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on again. Awesome. Awesome.